hello and good morning. Uh, welcome to East Lake Unknowns uh, Online for those of you who are watching online. Welcome to East Lake for those of you who are here uh, this morning. We are so glad that you made it out this morning. We are doing a uh, series, following up on a series, week part three of part four, uh, a series we're calling God and Gold. It's basically a series on how um, getting religion can make you filthy, filthy rich. Um, and so we're super glad. I'm just kidding. That's not what it's about. Um, it's almost about the opposite. Although those two things oftentimes do seemingly go together in the, in the world history of how things have worked out. But really, it's a series on empire. And I know that that doesn't sound like all sexy and whatever. Um, in fact, this week, I had a friend, uh, Travis, uh, show me a picture of his uh, phone. He had messaged a friend. He was showing me a different text, but on it, I could see that he had messaged his friend earlier, asking a friend who he works with, hey, you want to come to church with me and hear about Empire? And I realized, like, there was no return message from that, from his buddy, um, because why would there be? Like, what, can you imagine, how would you respond to that? So if you're here and you're a first-time guest, and you came because of Empire, like, who are you? I want to meet you. I mean, that's, that's, that's impressive. Um, but what we realized, what I realized in that moment is it doesn't even matter what I had put or what he had put in that, like, dot, 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 a series about, you want to come here about whatever, um, because it's not about what. It's never really been about what for us here at Eastlake. It's been about how we approach things, and, and the how we approach is that we want to do, we want to have a conversation about what it would look like to walk in the way of Jesus, um, but we want to do it in such a way that it feels welcoming and at home for people who are typically unchurched or find themselves not really into the whole church thing. So... Um, that's kind of what it's been about. So, and we say when you put it like that, uh, why learning the effects of why learning about empire actually become important. If we're learning what it means to walk in the way of Jesus, and he had things to say about empire, then perhaps it's worth our time to be able to spend a few weeks discussing it in this way. So if you have missed any of the previous uh, two talks leading up to this, and this interests you, or you want to re-listen to this, or forward it to a friend, or whatever, if you go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks, you'll be able to find those two previous talks. Or better yet, an easier way to do it is to download the app uh, and look for East Lake Tri-Cities in whatever app store you use and make that thing work. All right. Jesus had plenty to say uh, about empire. And because, and the Bible as a whole specifically talks a lot about empire, because of an agrarian audience, uh, many of the examples in both the Old Testament, uh, which was Jesus' cultural background, and the New Testament, which are basically his life and his teachings and its impact on all of his followers moving forward, have to do with agriculture. When he tells a parable, a lot of times it's uh, a story of a farmer or uh, somebody who owns a sheep or somebody who owns you know, cattle or whatever. When you harvest, this is one of the things that shows up in the Old Testament. When you harvest, don't go all the way to the edges. Leave a little bit along the edges and along the sides so that the widows, the orphans, and the refugees in your area have something to feed on. There are people who are literally watching you as you work, and if you can leave a little bit of something for them, that's called being merciful uh, with your stuff. There's, there's definitely talks about doing that if you're a business owner or whatever uh, in the Old Testament. In one of Jesus' parables, he's telling this story about a shrewd manager and somebody who kind of uh, works some things and works some angles because he understands the full implications of it. And one of the phrases that shows up in Matthew chapter 25, verse 24 says, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. In other words, that is like the epitome of an empire move, gathering where you have not sown, reaping what you have not earned yourself. This is an empire move in this way. We can be envious of people who um, harvest more than us, but when they've gone through the hard work of sowing, when they've gone through 12 years of education and they're a doctor, they probably should get paid more than me, you know, whatever. Like we kind of can rationalize it in our brain. There's not much there, but when people reap when they have not sown, ah, 
that's when things get interesting for us. That feels like a very empire move to us. When we look at things and like, you're taking more than you deserve in this way. When they claim credit for work that they did not do. When they claim credit for work that you did. And because they're your supervisor, they claim credit for it. And they're getting all these things. You're like, you didn't do anything. I did all of that, right? When they take more than they give, when they tax more than they return in services, and it begins to feel like a pattern, that is when colonies rebel and tea gets thrown in the Boston Harbor. That is an empire sort of move. So um, what I would like to do and what our approach strategy has been for this entire series is to look on this with like one eye on it as a corporate level empire sort of thing, because it feels like empire can't be contained to a person. It feels like very much a, uh, we do this uh, together or we do this as a nation or in in scripture, it's like empires fighting against each other and, and one empire giving way to another empire that comes along. Um, So there's a sense of corporateness to it, but uh, we're not about trying to figure out what it means on a corporate level. As much as it is, we have one eye on that, which helps us interpret what does it look like for me on a personal level to begin to live this out. If what Jesus or the scripture has to say about empire on a corporate level means, then for me personally, what am I afraid of when it comes to empire and me living it out in the 21st century in this way? Because according to Jewish wisdom texts, it does more than cause strife between relationships, this idea of somebody taking that thing that which, of which they're not due. The reason we have to watch for it in ourselves, the reason that empire is not just for somebody else or for bigger corporations, but it has an effect on us, and the reason we have to be cautious of this is because that sort of empire mentality, if we absorb it and begin to live that out in our own lives, does something to us. Jewish wisdom text literature, oftentimes known as um, uh, the, 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 either the Song of Solomon or, or Psalms or specifically Proverbs, uh, in this case, says something like, this is the curriculum for all of the parents who are raising good Jewish kids without any school systems to go to. Make sure your kids learn the age-old wisdom passed down from our ancestors in this form. And one of them shows up in this way. Such, this is uh, Proverbs 1 verse 19. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain because it takes away the the life of those who get it. Or as Eugene Peterson kind of interprets it in his message version of this, which I really, really like. When you grab all that you can get, when you live your life in such a way that you are going after every little bit you can get, even in those cases when you do not deserve it, but because of an empire entitlement mentality, I can reach for this and do this. That's what happens. The more you get, the less that you are. That when when we see it, we are able to see a breakdown of empire in T getting thrown into the Boston Harbor because eventually people rebel. Um, but it also, on a personal level, does something to us as well. The more we get, the more we absorb, the more we are surrounded by empire and are not critical of that in our life and, and reflective upon how this is affecting our lives, it does something to us as well. We become something. We become less than what we really are. So the words, the caution, the, the reason that we have a series about this sort of thing is to say, watch out for empire. We live in empire. I mean, it's not just the fact that we live in America. This isn't a critique on anti-America. I'm talking about, um, this is a critique on the empire attitudes that are oftentimes found within nations like America, right? Uh, and, and therefore then, how do I um, take a look at my life and ask myself, where have I been entitled in the way of empire? Where have I felt like I'm reaping where I have not sown or taking more than I can get? And what is that doing then 
um, to me. Much of the Old Testament is about Israel's relation to empire. Uh, The book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, is about Israel leaving an empire, the empire of Egypt. We talked about that in week two, and relearning what it means to be sort of human in this way, because there's a propensity for the rescued to then become the oppressors. There's a, there, there's a, there, and, that, and that's true historically, but that's also true for us. When we've been relieved of something, right? When we've been rescued from something, it's really easy for us to kind of then become the oppressors uh, in that way. And when that takes place, we said last week, what it leads to, Exodus then becomes exile. And exile is when you forget your story. Exile is when I forget where I've come from and I kind of leverage it in this way and I make myself a version of myself that isn't my true self. So when we left off in the story, Solomon had a temple, he had a thriving economy, he had military strength as represented by the cities that we talked about, the admiration of outsiders, the queen of Sheba's coming in to kind of validate his his work. A small, no-name country was actually making a name for itself. And if countries were a stock, this was a, a successful IPO right? This is a little guy making himself uh, known and actually making this sort of thing work. Until, as we read in scripture, it didn't work, right? They had wealth and influence and blessing, but eventually they lost it. And according to the Old Testament prophets, it was because they did a couple of things. One, they forgot who their God was. They forgot where they came from. They forgot their story. They began to neglect the widow, the orphan, the refugee in their area. They cut all the way to the edges of their fields when they sowed. They became empire. They became the epitome of empire. And the ironic thing that the prophets are quick to point out is, it's so weird that you have this empire mentality because you're not that big. You know what I mean? It's kind of like making a big name for yourself in West Richland. You're like, we are going to be the best in West Richland. Yeah, but it's West Richland. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's fine, but like, that's not like, you're not breaking any records with this in this way. Why don't you just aim a little higher? You know, here's the bow. Just tip it up a little bit, you know? Don't make that the goal. Do, do something a little bit more. So after repeating, uh, repeated warnings from several prophets, the Babylonians, and the, as the story goes, sweep in from the east. Everything's burned. The best and the brightest are hauled off to Babylon, to exile. You didn't want to be the one left behind in Jerusalem because, one, you didn't have a house to live in anymore, and, two, you weren't part of the best and the brightest. You're the dumbest, right? So we leave you behind in this way. And as the story goes, they move further east, and the metaphor keeps going further east, away from Eden, away from the paradise, away from the way that things are supposed to be. In Babylon then, um, I believe this is where much of the Old Testament is actually collaborated and put together. It's a group of people who find themselves in exile trying to make sense of where we came from and how this happened to us. And so they, they have all of these stories that they begin to finally put down on paper to say, we don't know how long we're going to be here. Let's make sure our descendants know that we came from somebody. We don't want our story to just blend in and all of a sudden we're just Babylonians and our, our, our kids don't know where we came from. We will not let these stories die with us. And so although a lot of this took place before Babylon, I think it came together during this Babylon period and many of the Psalms... Um, yes, they were written by David, and David wasn't in Babylon, but then, uh, again, the collection didn't come together until after that, and so some of these psalms inter- interspersed in here, especially the ones that are uh, with unknown authors, have to do with these people trying to make sense of this, and just like any kind of generation in any culture, some of our most creative 
um, expressions of kind of where we are as a culture come through the arts, right? Uh, the questions, the boundary pushing, the, all of the things, and it sh- this shows up the same with these psalms. Some of these things that are, arise in the psalms, these songs that they would sing together would be this cultural expression of asking the question, what is our identity, where we are, and where are we headed in this way? So Psalm chapter 137, verses 1 through 4 says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. This is clearly post-exile. This is them reflecting on where we've come from and why we find ourselves here. And how did we go from a nation who was chosen by God, but then sent into exile through in, in Egypt, and then spent 400 years in a slavery system, rescued? We had almost all these things going for us. We had this successful IPO, and then now we find ourselves here once again, Right? We're by the rivers and we wept when we remembered where we came from. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, they said. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? They hung up their harps. The harp was an instrument of joy and of celebration. The harp was the sound you heard when life was good. And there's no reason for harps in a place like Babylon. How can we be expected to sing with all of this going on around us? Imagine all of the harps that have been hung up this summer because of the pandemic that we've had, right? We've enjoyed, we've had traditions that have gone by the wayside. We always go to the coast. We always do this. Yeah, but like, why leave right now, right? I mean, We've always enjoyed doing this, but it just feels different this year. I mean, what's the point of it? And it's not just a pandemic year. There have been years that every family goes through this phase where like, are we going to do the whole lights on the house this year for Christmas? I mean, what's the point, right? Like, it feels kind of drawn out. It just doesn't feel like a year that we're going to do it. And I don't know why. Maybe it's, uh, you know, illness with the family. Our mind's taken up elsewhere. We're just busy. We're traveling a bunch this year. But at some point, you ask this question, and then the response is always, there never was any point in the first place, right? Why do people do this anyways? It's tradition, it's whatever, it's always been an inconvenience, and yet we do it anyways because it feels like this is what we're supposed to do, and if we don't, we're like the cranks, right, at Christmas who don't want to celebrate, and apparently we don't love Jesus according to our neighbors. So we put up the lights on the house and we blow our electricity bill to bits. It doesn't take long for these exiles to connect their current agony with the story of their ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. It doesn't take long for them to realize or to ask the question, we've been here before. And they're the smartest and the brightest, so none of them are going, Babylon? We've been to Babylon before? No, no, idiot. We've been here before, though. Like, we've been here. We've been in exile. We found ourselves as slaves on the other end of oppression, uh, not being able to do that which we wanted to do, being told to sing songs when we, don't like, when we don't feel like singing songs. We've been this way before. Here we are back in the same sort of oppression. And it's because of probably that connection to sort of this um, Exodus version of Israel that they begin to sing songs or have generations of uh, uh, or, or venerations of hope of maybe there's something else in store for us. It's there that they begin to dream. And this is a psalm after all that they begin to write this way, but then all of a sudden it transforms into some sort of hope. If God acted on our behalf before, what's to stop him from acting again? 
Maybe it was one person, maybe it was a handful of people, maybe it was the optimistic people in the group, but eventually they connected their situation now to their situation then, and they said, if God did something for us then, then perhaps our God, in the midst of all of the other gods that are out there, right? They lived in a polytheistic culture, many gods, but our God is unique and special. Perhaps he wants to prove himself unique and special once again and do something for us as we find ourselves really with no other option in this way. And it's that last bit of hope that someone on the verge of a failed marriage clings to, right? You've had a friend or maybe you yourself have gone through a failed marriage before and you think if there's maybe, I know it looks grim and the future looks like there's not really a future at at all, but perhaps we can rekindle this thing one more time. What if there was a way to put it all back together again, and you find yourself, or you've seen them, and you've walked them through this, and they find themselves talking through the scenario with a small glimmer of hope, and you don't want to kill that hope for them, because what it does to them is it it causes them to think introspectively about themselves and go, get to the spot, hopefully, that they would say, I would do anything to have a relationship with my kid again, to kind of reverse the irreversible, to go back to save this thing, to have her like not be despised by me. I would do anything in this moment because desperate times, again, call for desperate measures. There's something about being fully present uh, to our pain, being willing to sit in our tears that permits us to imagine a sort of different kind of tomorrow, that there was a desperation that comes from sitting by the banks of the Babylon being told to play and not feeling like I'm willing to play um, that perhaps causes them to go, um, what would it take? What would it take for us to experience something different? And for those of you maybe in desperate situations watching this or hearing this or whatever going, um, yeah, that's, that's the thing I've been wrestling with for, for months now. Like, what do I got to do? What do I need to do? And it's interesting because oftentimes early in the stages of separation and marriage breakdown, um, when people are asked, well, who's at fault? Um, you know, we're smart enough to not say she is clearly, I mean, whatever. We're smart enough to kind of balance it out with, we kind of both are. Now I happen to think that I'm biased, but she needs more work than I do, or he needs more work than I do. Um, but we, we would say it's kind of both and, but at some point the desperation becomes so much, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So I'll eliminate the error on that person's part and it becomes entirely about me and then the person in the mirror, the only thing I can control is me and so that's when I begin to work on me which is all you can control anyways, which is a good spot to be in. So therefore, desperation oftentimes leads you to actual growth in this area. I'm, I'm saying all this because I think this is exactly what's going on with these people. We're saying it wasn't just by chance luck that you know, we find ourselves in Babylon again. We dropped the ball on some things. We became too empire focused. We became arms dealers for the ancient world. We were kind of the kind of people who came out of slavery saying, we'll never treat people like that. We'll never treat people the way that we were treated. And then a couple hundred years later, a couple generations later, we're doing that exact same thing and we've been blinded to the fact that that's exactly what we're doing. My God, it's our fault. We have work to do. It's on us. We've so been surrounded by empire, we got a little taste of empire and we did the same thing. And now that we have nothing to go off of, now that we have nothing else here, 
this is like fertile ground for us to finally begin to work on ourselves, to understand things about us. Blind spots that we would never have known had we stayed in a, in a state of entitlement or a state of empire. It would have always been kind of somebody else's problem. And now we can clearly realize it is very much us. This is what exile can do to you sometimes. Maybe those harps don't have to hang in there forever. And while some of the Old Testament writings, uh, prophetic, you know, there's, there's a section of books. I mentioned wisdom literature books, so Solomon, Song of Solomon, uh, Psalms and Proverbs and whatever. There's also then um, law books, those are the ones early, and then a set of prophetic books, major, minor prophets. Uh, and a lot of times uh, there's in those sections um, various sort of themes or genres within those things. A lot of them are um, warnings and red flag alerts to the nation of Israel. Repent from your ways. Stop living like this. Stop living empire-minded or else bad things are going to happen to you. And then stories about how they didn't listen and the Syrians came in from the north and the Babylonians from the east and how then they were hauled off into exile. But it's not just about warnings and red flags about what's imminent and what's coming. It was also, again, proclamations uh, about something different. There's a visible shift in some of the writings about the beginning of something new arising from the ashes, sort of like a phoenix. Something needs to die, and then that new thing comes back, and it's stronger than even the first one. So the, in these prophetic writings, yes, you have plenty about destruction and fall, right? And, and, and when I say prophetic writings, oftentimes we think immediately like revelation in times. That's not what Old Testament prophecy is about. It's about this failure of, of the nation state of Israel. Um, and then in this new thing, it's about, it's about this restoration of Israel for sure in their mindset, but it's like, it feels like there's something more there. When you read it, you realize it's not just about that. There's, there's, there's definitely a bigger picture involved in this. And they, they would then interpret it, though, as um, kind of the smaller unit. But, but looking back on us, and, and when we read the New Testament, we would see these New Testament authors reach back into Old Testament prophecy and really highlight the universal approach of some sort of new exodus out of this exile into a new covenant and a new way of doing things and a new heaven and a new earth and a new everything, Right? So this is a big deal. This is uh, important. This is something new for them, something new for humanity in general. I'm, I'm introducing a new reality. And they would say, oh, good, we get to go back to Israel. And he's like, yeah, yeah, kind of, but there's more than that. This is, a, 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 I, I'm having you hope on something bigger than this, something new for all creation. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says this, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You've heard this verse before, right? And you're sitting there and you, you, you read this and you hear me talking about it and you say, now see Brent, that verse is about being a parent during at-home learning. Because I got this part on a mug somewhere and it's just telling me don't grow weary because October 15th is closer than you think and those kids will be back in school and you'll be able to do whatever it is they do. Or, or perhaps you say, now see Brent, that verse is a verse about America um, because I don't know how you missed it, but there's eagles in here and that clearly is like this forward-looking thing about how America will uh, repent of their ways and rise up as, as eagles or whatever. And, and then yeah, I'm like, well, that's, 
This is about a nation finding themselves in Babylon trying to hope for a new creation and being told that God's not through with them quite yet. And then the question then becomes, well, why can't I make that verse personal to me? Why can't I use it to be an inspiration for me on my coffee mug every morning and be like, you can do this, Brent. You can make this thing happen. You can start. You can. I'm not saying you can't, but you do need to know what it was originally designed for, right? I mean, I think that's really important. Listen, I don't care if you use an axe to hammer in a nail, but that's not what an axe is for. An axe is for cutting wood. You should probably know that. Now, will it work the other way? Will this verse work to inspire you to treat your kids nice until October 15th? Sure, then use it, absolutely. But the original point of it was the more efficient use of it is some other way. And it's for them to realize this hope that they're trying to cling to, that God's not finished with us, that our uniquely chosen nation doesn't die in Babylon. It's a story of once a, a nation who once was, who made an improbable IPO, but then forgot what they, where they came from and all the things that were important and eventually died off. That there's something bigger than this. This new vision, this new dream is really this new exodus sort of uh, this, uh, this new Exodus approach, and yet in, in, it's different this time. He's not speaking of liberation. Or these prophets aren't writing about liberation from a particular oppressive empire. Yes, it is going to be an Exodus from Babylon, but like, again, aim a little higher. You don't need to be the best in what's traditional. Aim a little bit higher in this way. This is an Exodus from that sort of living so that you don't just get out and then repeat the cycle all over again. History of mankind is this unique repetitive cycle that we're going to get Exodus out of that, then we find ourselves going, you know, becoming empire again, and then we go into exile. And it's this endless cycle Exodus, empire, exile, Exodus, empire, uh, uh, exile. And he's like, no, 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 this new thing that I'm drawing you to is bigger than you think. Isaiah writes about it in this way as well. Again, another prophetic writing. Verse uh, 2 of chapter 2 In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. For them, hills were a religious symbol. This is where you, you went up to go on, on Mount Sinai to get the tablets of God. There, there was like high places and low places, all right? So the higher you were up in the mountains, you were technically closer to the heavens. And so for them, that was a religious place. And in this scenario, he's using this imagery to say, um, Israel will be the most religious place ever. Like there may be other gods and, and they may have these other cultures, but um, Israel's God, Yahweh God, will be the closest thing to the heavens that we know. And all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because we don't need them anymore. Why? Because nation will t not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I mean, that's like the picturesque dream, right? I mean, this is kind of what we are all, are all hoping for uh, in our current generation. Let's, uh, and this has been kind of the approach of uh, a lot of modern uh, legislation of everything. Let's make everything about commerce. That way we're not going to war over people that we need to buy cheap things from and sell expensive things to, right? Commerce is the solution for all of this. Um, so in this picture, there's this world that exists where the nation of Israel's God is treated as like the best way to know anything about the existence of some sort of a deity and people will flock to here going, well, we got to get their take on it because obviously it's the best way to go. And there's no war anymore. There's no battle and there's no conflict in this way. And yet there's this inclusive all language in this. Isaiah, you keep using 
all the nations and all the people. It's very, very confusing because clearly God has chosen a specific people. He's chosen us. Now, ironically, it's us, which is awesome that we are the ones, right? Um, But you keep using inclusive all language and it's not really there. Isaiah then goes on, chapter 19, verse 23 through 25, another prophecy. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria, the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. And in that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth, by the way, Egypt, Assyria, the, the, the images of empire, right? Uh, the, it, it, Egypt, where they came from, Assyrians, the empire who eventually overtakes them. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. For Israel's listeners, Assyria and Egypt are the ultimate example of evil. This is like as bad as it gets. You thought we were bad in empire and deserved exile. Why would you ever reward them in this way? These are the peoples Isaiah's audience think need to be wiped off the face of the earth. Irredeemable, they would say. Deplorables. They are the ones who need to be hunted down and sent a message. And yet, in Isaiah's vision of this new exodus into this new reality, there's an inclusion of them. Meanwhile, Isaiah keeps going, promising salvation that reaches to the ends of the earth, a place where the wolf and the lamb will feed together, not on one another. And all of these expectations for this nation as they kind of try and make sense of why they ended in exile and what's in their future. And as they write songs of hope for a new sort of exodus, and as these prophetic writings begin to paint the picture And if you believe Old Testament scripture is what it is, a voice of God trying to work through the writings of these men to try and pull these people to a sense of new reality. And in these writings, these these visions and these pictures of a new heaven and new earth begin to coalesce into one person. It it becomes um, as if there's like this evolution in their thinking from a movement towards a person. If a movement is going to take place, it's going to take place because of leadership and leadership comes down to a person. We need a person, somebody like Moses who leads us out of this exodus and into this new promised land, but like better than Moses, somebody um, who has like kingly like qualities like Solomon, but obviously without the shortcomings and without all the like the empire stuff and without all the wives, right? So like Solomon, but like a better version of Solomon, somebody who's like a servant, but maybe like a suffering servant whose crimes against him count as kind of like the punishment that we were supposed to go through. Maybe a a prince of peace, Isaiah would talk about. A, A prince who's all about peace, a term that would be coined in the future generations from the Roman government to describe Caesar Augustus, a somebody who brings peace, the Pax Romana for the entire Roman world. Don't worry, you can live in peace. Augustus is alive to protect you. Kind of like that, but like less oppressive than that. So like a real true prince of peace in this way. This is how the messianic evolution or expectation evolved, you guys. It started with people by the Babylonian river crying out for a better future. And they realized if that better future is going to come, it's going to come through a person. It's going to come through a Messiah, an anointed one, a sent one. We believe God still has a future for us. And that new future is initiated by something. What began as a hope for a Jewish leader, for Jewish people, needed an exodus, uh, needed an exodus from uh, Babylon, evolved over time into the ex- expectation of a leader who would be for everybody. What started as a promise of hope for a particular group of people 
finding themselves on a particular river in Babylon turned into a universal hope for all of humanity, whatever river they find themselves behind. And this, by the way, is how the scriptures end in the Old Testament. For the Hebrew scriptures, this what if is where it all ends. What if God's not done with us? What if there is somebody in this way with expectations hanging in the balance, hope suspended, waiting, watching, hoping, and asking the question, what if we had it all back? What if we could do it again? What if we could learn from empire? What if we could learn from the black hole that seems to be empire that sucks us all in and then eventually destroys us. What if David had another son, not Solomon, like Solomon, but better? What if Solomon was not the end of the story? And that's where we pick it up next week for part four and the conclusion of our series, God and Gold. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that as we observe the nation of Israel, historically looking at the Old Testament and their process through which they uh, came out and came into empire and, and how it infiltrated them, that we would by chance then see the effects on just human nature and, and what it means to be human and then realize that we are not exempt from that, that every day that we go through life in America or wherever we live and wherever we're watching this, there's going to be a temptation towards empire, towards taking more than which we are due, to feel that feeling of entitlement, to have a lack of concern for anybody else beyond ourselves, to only uh, love and like people when it benefits us somehow, to, to use people as stepping stones towards things that we wanted, to lead in, in a way that our sense of self-worth is what's most important. And that is not a way to live. And we know where that leads. It leads to exile. And uh, you have called us to something more than that. You've called us uh, into an existence where our love for our enemies is there because eventually one day we hold out the hope that uh, we, we, we all feast together, that we all live together in peace and harmony. And, and, and so we pray that that would begin to shape our mentality, that we would look at what that means in our life this week, the habits that we've developed that are uh, laden with empire sort of thinking, uh, that we begin to address some of those and move forward in a uh, more holistic way that looks like love. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.